Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Triple R. You will feel very, very nice. Einstein Gogo. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for joining us here on Triple R for this glorious Sunday morning. And uh, if for some reason you are you know, a person like myself, born in the 70s or something, and you haven't adjusted your clocks, I'm sorry, but you, you've missed a show or you're hour ahead for a show. I can never work it out. Good morning, Dr. Linden. Good, Good to see morning, you. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Great to see you as well. If anybody's feeling a bit dusty from the game yesterday as well, it's oh. all very confusing. Big day yesterday, yeah. confusing times, sunshine. It's all There's a lot yep. going on, but we're here for you. <laughs> yeah, we are. Now, uh, folks, if you are not aware, it's still the Radiothon season. So if you haven't subscribed to Triple R and you'd like to do so, we'd very much appreciate that if you go online at rrr.org.au. Um, some great people that have been doing that, which we will mention a little bit later in the show. But this year, it's uh, the theme is it's educational. And I think that's appropriate because this week, Dr. Linden, uh, we're doing a special education program where I've kicked all the other hosts off and we have three of your students and Dr. Jen's students in to help us with the program. Yes, that's right. So one of the subjects we teach at the University of Melbourne is about communicating science. You want to communicate science because you love communicating it. You want to talk about it. And we always get a lot of students every year wanting to take part in this program. We've got three wonderful, wonderful voices here today, Lily and Rolly and Ryan, who are going to talk us through some science. And you've been kindly lending us the show, Dr. Shane, for over a decade. Is that yeah. right? Yes, but well, I'm not that old. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, it's been a while. Dr. Jen and I have been doing this now for uh, quite a while so and it just happens to fall in the so the radiothon period this time which is cool because education is the you know the core of this station especially the core of the sunday morning grid mm-hmm. and um and so it's nice to be able to partake in the education process as well absolutely and i find every year we do this show Not only is it educational in that our wonderful students get a chance to practice their incredible skills, but I learn a lot. I learn a lot. There's some we've we've got some exciting science coming up. We do. We have some fun. We're going to start off with some news as per usual. And uh, first up is Ryan. Well, actually, I should introduce you all before we even start. That we've got Ryan here. Good morning, Ryan. Good morning. We've got Rolly. Good morning, Rolly. Oh, hang on. My mic's It's a good start. Good start. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and we've got Lily. Good morning, Lily. Good morning. Great to be here. It's good to have you all. Now, Ryan, give us some news. What's happening? Righto. So it's hard to say what's going to happen in a week or a month or a year. But in the past week, scientists have found a way to look at what the Earth will look like 250 million years in the future. Oh. Now, what they found is that it actually looks pretty familiar, but not to the Earth of today. 
Now, 250 million years ago, all our continents existed in a big landmass called Pangaea. Yep. And 250 million years ago, a mass extinction event called the Great Death killed a lot of the species on Earth. Now, why am I telling you this? Well, essentially, this study published in the past week found that um, in 250 million years, history is going to repeat itself. Oh. Essentially, they've known for a little while now, or at least believed, that all of the continents will come back together to form a big supercontinent, um, Pangaea Ultima. But what they... <laughs> yeah, <like> very... <laughs> Take that, airlines. <laughs> <laughs> the final continent. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. That, um, what they didn't understand was what the climate of this new supercontinent is going to be. Mm. So they essentially used a supercomputer to create a simulation. They took into fact- account factors like um, wind, humidity, um, all of that, and they essentially modelled what the climate will look like on Pangaea Ultima in 250 million years. And essentially, it's going to be really hot. <laughs> there are a few big problems with the formation of this supercontinent. Um, for one, the ocean plays a big role in sort of stabilising the temperature of coastal areas. And the issue is that with a big supercontinent, most of the land is inland, and it doesn't have that stabilising effect of the ocean. Right. Yep. And yeah, that's why places like Alice Springs have really hot summers, because it's so far from the ocean. And most of the Pangaea Ultima will be subject to that. They also found that there'll be a lot of volcanic eruption, will increase the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere by 1.5 times what it is now, and it will raise the global temperature. And also, um, the sun's going to be older, and the sun's going to be brighter, and it's going to be providing more solar radiation, 2.5% more solar radiation to the Earth. So all of that's really going to raise the global temperatures, and mammals aren't going to fare very well from yeah, that. It sucks. I mean, it's it really is not good, uh, this is not good to hear. Two, no. 250 million years? Two, yeah, that's a... Fair way away. Yeah. But, you know, because I'm, I'm working on the robot body, so, I, you know, I've got to take these things into account personally. <laughs> I you suppose know it's I mean? important to note that we discovered agriculture like 10,000 years ago. 250 million years is, what, 25,000 times that length of time? Yeah. It's in, yeah. Yeah. Unimaginably long amount of time. Yeah. I, I find it unimaginable that the best name they could come up for this new supercontinent was Pangaea Ultimate. Yeah. <laughs> you think they'd go with something a bit more creative. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, like Pangaea 2. Yeah. Yeah. Pangaea 2. You know, like, I mean, there was a show called Earth 2 back in the 70s or 80s, I think it was, a sci fi show. <laughs> Loved it. Um, wasn't very good, folks. Don't don't <laughs> dig it up. But it, uh, you know, as a child, I enjoyed it. But yeah, Pangaea, well, that's, that's interesting. I think, um, I wonder how they do those calculations. I want to see that that modeling you know when you go to the museum of victoria i think they still have it and they have all the ro- rotating earths at various mm. epochs and i want the new one <laughs> where it just shows it looks like venus also yeah. <laughs> i guess that's it right i mean they do have pictures it? of the heat maps and everything and essentially yeah. just the entire continent is just covered in red <laughs> like the hottest Ugh, doesn't look good doesn't no. look good oh. thank you ryan uh rolly what do you got um, yeah, so fatty liver disease is a growing health concern today, um, probably not that surprisingly, um, but a new study published this week um, could offer some hope in the future, regardless of whether you're a human or a chicken. Oh. <laughs> so fatty liver disease is exactly what it sounds like. You get fat deposits in and around the liver. Um, it's pretty nasty. It can lead to cirrhosis and liver cancer and liver failure in humans and chickens. Um, and it's actually a challenge for doctors to diagnose, um, GPs and vets, of course, um, because your liver is inside you. It's not that easy to examine. And there's currently no blood test or anything that can sort of interrogate the progression of fatty liver disease, you know, to diagnose it initially and, you know, see how bad it is. So in a new study, um, researchers examined gene expression in the livers of 
Um, Chickens. chickens, yeah, chick- chickens <laughs> and humans, yeah, um, both healthy and with fatty liver disease, and they found multiple different genes that were the same between the two species that changed during disease progression. Um, so yeah, fatty liver disease is a really, you know, it's a problem for people. It's caused by being too fat and eating too much. Um, and chickens have exactly the same issue because they also find themselves, unfortunately, sitting in confined spaces eating too much grain. Um, yeah, so this is great news. You know, if we can develop a blood test that GPs can use, we can find this disease before it progresses to a later stage and causes permanent liver damage. Yeah, indeed. Um, and yeah. Uh, um, liver diseases of that type too aren't, uh, are somewhat can be independent of people's body mass and so forth as well. I mean, if you... Not everyone... You know, can control that in a way that's that's reasonable and mm. and livers are you know if you have a good if you damage part of your liver and the rest of your liver is good all's good yeah, yeah. although uh, but if it's for... all if it's all damaged then you're kind of screwed yeah. yes and you want to you want to catch it before it gets to that point um, yeah but yeah with, with this particular Ooh. liver disease the treatment is usually eating less um, chickens <laughs> yeah, yeah. well, it's good for chickens in two ways, right? You know, your yeah. vet can diagnose your fatty liver disease and somebody with fatty liver disease will be motivated to eat less chickens. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's all about the chickens. We had a, we, there, There's a show that's sometimes on, on the summer break on Triple R about chickens. I love it. It's mm. on, on the Sunday. That, uh, anyway, uh, all good stuff. Thank you, uh, Rolly. Lily, some news? Yeah, thanks, Dr. Shane. So I stumbled across this story the other day and I thought it might be a great news piece for listeners who want to have a bit of a lazy Sunday. Sunday morning because basically there might be a way that you actually don't have to train to become a faster runner hmm. now everyone's looking a bit happy to hear yeah, that news. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. so there was a um, publish put out last week by scientific robot or science robotics and they looked at the potential to wear a well, they're calling it a wearable robot so it's like this little exoskeleton suit and basically you put it on and it sits around your thighs and it's got these little cables that connect to little motors and what those motors help you do is they help you actually take more steps as you run now increasing your frequency of taking steps essentially is going to help you run faster you'll be able to cover a distance over a shorter period of time and what it does so it connects the cables around your thigh and the little motors sort of sit up on the you know your lower back area and it helps with your hip flexor so your hip flexor which is you know a really important component of running and something that athletes often focus on you know being able to build up muscle and be able to create explosiveness and then through doing that yeah it increases your frequency um, and then what it does is it puts it has like little sensors on your thighs and that reads your gait so you know if you think about people have a unique way that they walk or run and it feeds that data into an algorithm that then so adapts to your unique speed and your unique style of running to help assist so you know it can be unique to everyone the way that I run versus the way Ryan runs this little exoskeleton will work it out and then from there it'll help you yeah speed up but what the study actually looked at is it got people who are already quite elite athlete runners so these are people that already train considerable amounts and it got them to do a few 200 meter runs and it did it with this exoskeleton outfit on and then without and what it found that over on average these runners were actually able to run one second faster which when you think about it if you're already training like and you're already building muscle and already have all that explosiveness that's considerably faster but 
keep in mind what they're saying is it's quite a preliminary study and it's actually the first of its kind really and the thing is because it's only increasing your frequency to run it's not helping you build muscles so when you're not wearing the suit it might not actually be that beneficial and there'll obviously be regulations around you know i don't think you'll be allowed to wear these suits in races anytime soon (laughs) so i'm saying you know i don't think we can accept expect a sub nine from usain bolt anytime soon wearing the suit but if you want to have a go at running faster and you really don't want to put in the effort it might be for you yeah i'm wondering socially how my friends would react if they saw me in that because you know they they know i can run like but i'm lazy (laughs) and so that would be seen as something that would be inappropriate but i can imagine this really has many applications even beyond just running more you know Mm -hmm. for various people with you know disabilities or with with sorts of rehab requirements um where you do need support like it's you know for people in rehab you know from various surgeries and that it can be excruciatingly difficult to get your mobility back and if Mm -hmm. this thing can help you know in any way that would be enormous so yeah that's cool yeah one step closer to becoming transformers i guess yeah well you know we all want it but <laughs> sooner or later uh now i was going to mention something exciting dr linda while you're in the studio but uh you'll appreciate this it's only eight days until the new solar panels are being installed on my house this is the third time I've had solar panels installed. Uh, I've got to stop moving. Um, but it's a very exciting time. Congratulations to you, Dr. Shane. That is exciting. Yeah, I'm going to, at some stage, I think I'll do a, a whole segment on the show on the BS I went through to sort this out because there are companies now that are so predatory and they tell you so much bullshit. I was like, my goodness, you know. I was sort of helped by the fact that I have a degree in physics and have installed two previous systems. <laughs> so I kind of knew what I was doing. But my goodness, some of the stuff that they tell you, you know, these things make coffee, everything these days. <laughs> it's incredible. Um, but you've got to sift through it to make sure you get um, the right thing. And, yeah, it's getting harder and harder all the time, isn't it? D- lots of different uh, organizations yeah. providing you with different things. We'll help you with this. We'll help you with yeah. that. We'll organize it all. And uh, electricity companies as well oh, getting all, in on the action. They're all it's doing tricky. it. Yeah. Yeah. And the because the, I because I also you know my one of my jobs is selling scientific instruments. I'm a bit of a sales guy, so I know when someone's trying to sell me something in in a way that's inappropriate. You know, <laughs> when you when they start saying, "Oh, those companies are right, but they have these delays because their people aren't as good at getting the government." Re- it's like, really? Mm. <laughs> are you sure about that? So, have you got a guy? Are you prepared to recommend it? Oh yeah, I've got a guy. Yeah, there's ah. a guy, and, and coincidentally, it's the same person who installed the last two. As oh well. yeah. So you know, I, but I went back and I went back to the market and had another look and so forth. And this person actually is still more expensive um, than the other ones available, but overall, the experience was was better, and they seem to be doing a, a very good job. Oh, great. So, well, stand by for all the text messages oh, asking, for gonna, your, asking for your asking for your tips for your recommendations because <laughs> that's how people do it, right? Yeah, and it's yeah. the same with scientific information. You trust people you know and so i'm yeah. sure there'll be a lot of people saying oh if it's good enough for dr shane it's good well, enough we'll for see. me and Here's that's why right. i haven't done it on the show yet because i want it installed and running oh, before okay. so uh, stand by just Hold in case texts. just in case um but you know it's been a pretty good experience so far but, uh, getting ready for that el nino summer a lot of yeah. extra summer. yeah well i just i want to be able to run my aircon without feeling like mm. a, a bad person mm. <laughs> i think that's part of it uh but no it's it's something that you have to do I getting think. ready for pangea ultimate yeah, but it does. Uh, it offends me that new homes can still be built um, without these, and because mm. my home's only four years old, that's what really drove me nuts. Is that you know I have to do this again, yeah, again. You know, it's like oh god. Anyway, uh, that's my rant. We better <laughs> take a moment, play some music, uh, folks. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Triple R. <laughs> 
Yeah, welcome back, folks. Uh, you're listening to Einstein and Gago on 3 Jablar. That was uh, The Music That I Make by Leah Senior, if you're wondering what that track. Chilling out track for Sunday morning when the, uh, you know, we've lost an hour. We're never getting it back. We do get it back. We get it back. Don't worry, don't worry folks. Now, some amazing people have subscribed to Triple R, and uh, this is pretty exciting, actually. I'm just going to read out some of the names. We've got Grace Blog um, from Baxter, who has subscribed. Thank you very much, Grace. We've got Sean Roche from Dramana, who's also subscribed in a donation, and Grace gave us a donation as well. Kath McPherson from Mayfield in New South Wales. Kath, I'm so glad our transmitter is powerful enough to get to you. That is awesome. We've got uh, Louis Neldrit from Abbotsford, who's subscribed and given us a donation as well we've got terry and sue kennedy and park from fish creek subscribing to radio marinara damien zoo from brunswick east has renewed their subscription janine zimmer from seaford uh also renewing their subscription daniel Keane from east brunswick a renewal as well to uh, it's an artist actually uh to stolen moments and Catherine hoochin from fitzroy has renewed their subscription elizabeth van burkle from torquay uh has also renewed and a hundred dollar donation thank you very much elizabeth very appreciated michelle giuliano from Morabin has also renewed their subscription thank you all it is so important uh that people support the station it keeps us running on that note, uh, sorry, I, sorry, Ryan, I, I get excited <laughs> when people subscribe. I can't help it. Um, Pluto, what's going on? But, uh, so I don't know how many of you ever made a diorama of the solar system as a kid. I would have been about six or seven. I remember going to um, Spotlight with my mum. We bought these like ten styrofoam balls, a big one for the sun, then nine smaller ones for the nine planets. Can I tell you, I did that two weeks ago with my kid. <laughs> Why the teachers do this to us, you know, like us parents? That's a bit of fun. Get to paint them. But yeah, if you were to make a diorama today, you may have only bought eight styrofoam balls of the eight planets instead of the nine that I would have bought. Uh, well, actually, I, I did that, but, uh, but put a picture of Pluto on the side wall of the ah. diorama box just to indicate how I feel. It's still in your heart. Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, of course, I'm... Um, in recent history, Pluto went from being a planet to a dwarf planet. Mm. And um, there's something obviously a lot of people feel really passionately about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I suppose let's start by addressing a bit of a misconception. Over the, the last few weeks, pretty much everyone I've spoken to have asked the question, why is Pluto a dwarf planet? And I generally get the same sort of response. It's some sort of uh, permutation of, um, I don't know, it's because it's small, right? Mm. Which um, makes sense in theory, right? Dwarf planet, little planet. Pluto's the smallest planet in our solar system. Maybe that's why it's a dwarf planet. But that isn't actually the case. It has nothing to do with Pluto's size. Yeah, Mercury's busy. Yeah, Mercury's yeah. pretty small too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um, what it actually is, is that in 2006, the International Astronomers Union, or the IAU, introduced these three rules that a planet must abide by to be called a planet. Essentially, first, it has to orbit around the sun, which Pluto does. Tick. Yeah. Second, it has to essentially have enough mass and gravity to be spherical, which, of course, uh, Pluto has and is. Tick. The third is that it needs to have cleared its orbital zone, or cleared its mm. orbit, yeah. essentially meaning that as it rotates around the sun, there can't be other objects sort of occupying that space. And that's not something that Pluto's done. Essentially, Pluto's on the out, like the outermost side of our so- solar system, and just past that is the Kuiper Belt. The Kuiper Belt essentially consists of thousands of different space objects, and a lot of those inhabit the same path that Pluto travels. <sighs> So that's why it's a dwarf planet. And, yeah. you know, on the surface, it seems sort of unfair. Like, it seems like cruel to Pluto. Yeah. But um, there was a reason these rules were introduced. 
essentially the start of the 21st century, we really began looking at the Kuiper Belt. And we found that there are other dwarf planets in our solar system. You know, it's not just Pluto. Um, like, now we believe there could be up to 200 different dwarf planets in our solar system orbiting our sun. 200. Like, um, there's a lot of styrofoam balls to have to buy for that diorama. <laughs> well, you use the little ones from the beanbag at that point. Yeah, you'd have to. <laughs> Just chuck them in. <laughs> yeah, it was sort of this discovery that, yeah, there could be over 200 planets in our solar system that really sort of led us to making this classification of dwarf planet. Um, one of the scientists who were really responsible for this, um, Dr. Michael Brown, he released a book, and it was called um, How I Killed Pluto and Why It Had It Coming. <laughs> and, <laughs> nice. you know, in the book he says, like, um... We like the word planet should be reserved for those few things in our solar system that are truly important. Mm. You know, it seems fair. You know, we have a category for our eight big planets and a category for those two hundred other dwarf planets. Yeah, it's interesting, though, isn't it? Because the they they use the rule the three rules, but those rules aren't actually met by the other eight planets either. So no. um, Jupiter is a classic example. I mean, no one would question that Jupiter is a planet, but it has its trojan asteroids within its orbit which mm. are quite substantial like there are many many of them so it hasn't cleared its orbit yeah um, completely and that's yeah. actually why there are a lot of people who despite this and despite how fair it may sound are still really mad about this yeah. <laughs> and it's not it's just actually, very mad you know like now that you've explained it i am mad about it i'm yeah. like that's not fair they're just gatekeeping they just don't want there to be lots exactly. of planets and that's, and that's why they've done this exactly what planetary scientists a lot of planetary scientists say like they have so many different sort of arguments with um, these rules that were introduced. And I suppose it's a good thing to note that when the IAU passed these three rules, there was a vote by astronomers. But only 5% of astronomers were included in this vote. Oh, so 95% oh, of people... Not a representative sample. No, uh, I think the other thing that's yeah. interesting is that this all happened, of course, before the New Horizons probe went past Pluto and mm. showed it to be this incredible dynamic world, even with a very thin atmosphere, that active, like, what looked like almost like ice volcanoes and, and various geological features that were yeah. changing. And so we suddenly learned that this was this incredibly dynamic you know, um, sort of object in space, mm. whereas before we thought it was just this frozen mass, nothing of interest at all. But now we know different. And I think had this vote happened <laughs> post the New Horizons uh, craft going past, it might have been a different outcome. Mm, definitely. But there were also just a lot of issues with these rules in general. Um, a lot of planetary scientists argue that the rules are really sloppy mm. because, yeah, what does it mean to have cleared your orbit? Like yeah. you mentioned, those yeah. Trojan asteroids of Jupiter and even just... There are asteroids everywhere in space all the time. No planet's ever going to truly clear its orbit. Well, Earth hasn't. No. Yeah. 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 We, we, I mean, you know, <laughs> ask the dinosaurs, dude. Uh, you know, like it's like there, there is there is so much out there in space. Mm. I mean, space is a big, big open space, of course, but there's a lot of material in our solar system um, that we still encounter from time to time, and we see it. You know, we see it all the time. I think that's a, that's an odd one for me. I mean, yeah. You know, even things like moons. You know, like <laughs> what, what's I, I can't even remember the last count of Saturn and Jupiter's moons, but they're both above seventy. You know, yeah, I think one's in the eighties, one's in the nineties, and but. That's that can't be a requirement either because no. Pluto has a moon. Pluto Mercury doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, Venus doesn't. Mm. So there's some weirdness <laughs> in this. I think, uh, I don't know, there's some elements of uh, historical. Yeah. You know, I, 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 I believe it's a conspiracy of people trying to sell mm. books. Uh, new books well, yes. on astronomy in the schools. It's like, that's what happened with the Brontosaurus being an Apatosaurus. I know. think that provocative title from Dr. Michael Brown <laughs> yeah. sort of shows that. It was actually a really interesting talk from a planetary scientist that I think it perfectly sums up the passion that so many people feel for this. It was called 
why Pluto is a planet, the embarrassment of the IAU, and why they had it coming. <laughs> Which, yeah, really summed it up. And he says that, you know, there are countless stars and countless planets, and who cares? We need to get over this 20th century idea that and, we have to remember them all. And, and what about all of the other ones? Like all these small planets and dwarf mm. planets in the Kuiper Belt. Because, yeah, I think that's the biggest offence that I take with this whole thing, is that that Michael Brown quote where he said the word planet should be reserved for those few things that are truly important. Because Pluto is... Pluto's incredible. Like, how do we know that all the other things are not important and we're just not talking about them because we defined them out of being planets? Mm, Because, like, Pluto is the second most complex uh, geology next to Earth. Mm. It has a multi-layered atmosphere. It's got these, like, massive underground frozen oceans. It has these ancient lakes that... There's evidence of organic compounds existing on Pluto. Pluto's incredible. Mars can't hold a candle to Pluto. <laughs> like this idea that it's not important enough to be called a planet is ridiculous. Yeah, look, uh, we're going we're gonna to send you on to a um, facility, Ryan, where they can help you uh, <laughs> get, get over. <laughs> it is a struggle. Mm. I, uh, you know, I remember we had um, Neil deGrasse Tyson on um, the show wow. a few years back, and he's been, he's, he's been one of the you know, Pluto killers. Mm. And um, we didn't bring it up. I didn't bring it up because it just <laughs> opened a, a very bad wound because um, I think he copped a lot of grief over it. But mm. it, it is interesting. I think um, this is where science communication to the public comes into play, though, and, and science itself is not separated from mm. that because, of course, that interaction between you know what scientists do and how the public perceives it and then supports it is really important. Yeah. And I think there wasn't really much in the way of discussion with no. the public about, you know, what should we do here? Learning about all this, my opinion's really sort of flip-flopped between what yeah. I, whether I think it's a dwarf planet or a planet. I think a really good argument for it being a dwarf planet is that language changes and that's okay. Like, um, mm. there was a time where the sun was a planet and the moon was a planet and Earth wasn't a planet. And now, of course, it's ridiculous. Damn Copernicus. We changed... You ruined yeah. everything. <laughs> we changed the definition of planets, and now we're just changing it again. You know, the more we discover, the more things we learn are out there, the more sort of need there is to better categorise things. Yeah. Oh, look, I've got a... You know, Pluto's got a big heart for us. Mm. Boom, boom. Uh, <laughs> you know, we've got we to love it. But either way, I think it's, uh, it's amazing we have so much data on, on, on Pluto now, and, and that's phenomenal. And, mm. you know, we're heading through the, the Kuiper Belt, and uh, this is something that, you know, I think is fascinating that we're going to get more and more data on some of these objects in the Kuiper yeah. Belt. Thankfully, the Hubble Space Telescope, you know, upgraded, is able to see some of these objects because mm. prior to that we couldn't do that. I mean, this is one of the reasons why Voyager 1 and 2 never looked at those objects because, um, first of all, when they were launched, we didn't know the Kuiper Belt existed. <laughs> uh, there's that. But second, Hubble back at the time when Voyager 1 was well and truly in the Kuiper Belt didn't have the capabilities to image any of the objects there. So you couldn't point the damn thing in, <laughs> in the direction of an object. So, mm. you know, we're now getting all the information from New Horizons, which is, um, which is kind of cool. But, yeah, yeah, it's fascinating to think of what other dwarf planets could be out there. Yeah, oh, there's going to be a lot. Well, there's there's definitely, oh, yeah, yeah, apparently yeah. close to 200. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll name them all. Uh, folks, we're going to take a break for some important station announcements. Uh, thank you, Ryan. Interesting stuff. Thank Very you. emotional. I guess. <laughs> there's a lot of people at home right now. Very angry. Lots of people uh, are very passionate about uh, well, this. Sorry, yes. folks. We'll bring you back. We'll, we'll bring you back in just a moment. Triple R. Yeah, welcome back, folks. You're listening to Einstein and GoGo. It is a special week this week where we are doing a student week. The students have come in from University of Melbourne's Science Communication Program, and they are doing the show with me. Kicked all the other hosts off. They asked for a pay rise. I said no. You volunteers, people. <laughs> no, I didn't. Uh, Rolly, you're going to tell us about hot air balloons. What's going on? I'm going to tell you about hot air balloons and the way that the thing that makes hot air balloons float 
is ultimately also responsible for Melbourne's crazy four seasons in a day weather. We love it. Okay. So imagine a beautiful cold morning with a blue sky and you've got hot air balloons floating past. And have you ever thought about what actually makes them stay up? Um, So it's all to do with density. So when you heat up air, you make the molecules in that air start to move around a lot faster. And when they move around faster, they take up a lot more space. So, like, I think you could imagine it like a soccer team. And when they're not playing soccer, it's pretty easy for them to fit in, like, a medium-sized room. But as soon as they start playing soccer, you know, they're really pushing the boundaries. They're not going to fit in that confined space anymore. (laughs) Air is just like that. So if you had a litre of warm air and you had a litre of cold air and you weighed them both you would find that the warm air actually weighed a bit less than the cold air. And so when you fill a hot air balloon with warm air, it's buoyant. It's less dense than the surrounding cold air and it floats up. Uh, The same thing happens in reverse. If you've got a patch of cold air surrounded by warm air, it will sink. And you've probably all experienced this. Like if you walk down into a valley, um, particularly in the morning or evening, you know, the deeper you get, the colder it gets. Um, this happens to me all the time because I ride my bike through Darabit Creek. When right. you come down <laughs> yeah, to the creek, yeah. you're like, oh, it's freezing down yep. here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And this is because the cold air is more dense than the surrounding air and it all flows downhill and gathers in the valley. Um, so a much bigger, more classic example of this type of flow um, happens in Antarctica. So the Antarctic ice sheet is very, very cold um, and air that sits next to it for any length of time also gets very cold and density increases. The molecules get closer together and that cold air flows downhill. Now, if you can imagine the Antarctic ice sheet, like the shape of it is sort of similar to like if you had a marshmallow and you squished it down flat. You know, you can imagine the shape's fairly flat on the top, but the sides are quite steep. Um, So this air flows slowly down the top of the ice sheet and it picks up more and more speed as it comes to the edge until finally it basically falls off a cliff at the edge and it's going at tremendous speeds, up to 200 kilometres an hour. And this is some of the fastest wind in the world. I think it might be the fastest, is that... Oh, you're looking at me. I'm, I'm looking at you. Yo, you're the meteorologist. I'm not, I don't know, yeah. outside, outside of a hurricane. It is definitely yeah. some of the fastest. Yeah, well, it is some of the fastest wind in the world. Yeah, outside of hurricanes and cyclones, yeah. which definitely can get faster than that. Um, yeah, so you have this incredibly cold, incredibly fast wind, and when it reaches the ocean, it mixes with the warmer air masses over the ocean, and combined with the rotation of the Earth, this creates a gigantic. Sp- spiralling weather system, um, which meteorologists call an extratropical cyclone. Um, It's not quite the same as a tropical cyclone, which is the type of cyclone we usually hear about, Um, but it is similar in the sense that it is a big, swirling, windy thing. Yeah, anyway. uh, It's about 1,000 kilometres wide, I think. And Antarctica is surrounded by these things. Um, And associated with these weather systems, you often have cold fronts, which is... like a bulldozer of this freezing cold Antarctic air that comes whipping across the surface of, you know, of the Earth. Um, And, you know, I mean, this is what we get here in Melbourne. We get, you know, this Mm. incredibly cold air comes across and because it is dense, it pushes any warmer air that was there before out of the way. You know, the warm air rises just like in the hot air balloon and ends up on top. Um, And this is why 
it suddenly goes from warm to freezing cold in the matter of an hour or so, you know, because you get one of these air masses coming across. And the other thing that happens at the same time is that as this warm air rises, it cools. And cold air is not very good at holding on to water. Mm. Warm air is really a lot better at holding water than cold air. And so as this air cools, any water that is in that air condenses out and it falls down to the earth and it rains. And so that's why it suddenly turns cold and rainy. So you get that front. You get the front of both the wind and the temperature and the rain at the same time. Yeah, yeah. So, like, you know, it'll turn cold and it starts raining because you're getting this... Yeah, air rising up. So, yeah, next time that happens, you'll know that it's to do with the Antarctic ice sheet. So everyone can look forward to that in the next week. A couple of days. I would say. (laughs) I I think I saw one on the chart this morning. Yeah. Yeah. front. Yeah, Yeah, a bit of rain coming later in the week. A lot of rain. Or was it 28 yesterday? I think it's going to be 12 Mm. on Friday. So Mm. thanks, Melbourne. Thanks, Antarctica. (laughs) Yeah, thanks, Antarctica. Thanks, winds. I've got to say, if I was living in Maribyrnong right now, I'd be buying sandbags. (laughs) Oh, you think? Well, there's a lot of rain coming, a lot of rain. And and I don't know. Have they addressed that issue over there? I suspect not. No, I'm not Um, sure about that flooding but yeah. i also know and and Rolly, you you might be able to attest to this that the Maybe. predicting rainfall is much harder than predicting temperature so there's the bureau of meteorology yes. saying a lot of rain now they tend to kind of say could be lots and lots and lots but it might not be quite so much so let's hope let's hope yeah well we need a bit but not too much exactly yeah well uh here i was thinking it was just uh winter and summer fighting it out no, not at all. <laughs> oh, summer always wins, though. It always wins. It's weird, that isn't it? It's a very one-sided. Uh, at this time of year, not the other time of year. Thank you, Rolly. That was good stuff. Uh, folks, we're going to take a break for some station announcements. But before we do, I just wanted to thank Kathy Vidma, who is from Montmorency and has renewed her subscription to Einstein and Gogo. Thank you very much, Kathy. And Lisa Acadia, who is in Hillsville, one of my favorite places. I love Hillsville. There's that burger. Anyway, no, I'm not going to talk about specific businesses that feed me, but they have such good food down there. Uh, Lisa Acadia from Hillsville, renewing also to Triple R. Thank you very much, both of you, for supporting the station. Here's some important announcements. Triple R. Uh, welcome back, folks. Uh, you're listening to a science show. If you haven't worked it out at this point, I can't help you. Uh, but you might as well just stay with us because it's good stuff. In the studio with us is Lily. Lily's going to talk about the moon. What's going on? Is it still there? Yeah, thanks, Dr. Shane. Definitely still there. So I guess, forget made in China. Could our manufacturing labels one day read made on the moon? Mm. Now, everyone's giving me a very funny look. I'm not at all suggesting that if you go down to your local $2 shop, you'll be getting moon products anytime soon. <laughs> maybe, maybe not in this lifetime. Um, but, yeah, you might have been hearing a lot about the moon lately, and I guess a lot of countries are really interested in getting there, and even private companies are interested in mm. getting there. So what's it all about and why? And if you're like me, it kind of feels a bit like deja vu or a thing of the past. Wasn't the space race something that was, you know, the 60s and early 70s? I mean, you know, Buzz and Neil famously took some steps. And then, you know, US went up a few more times. They collected a few more rocks. They looked around, explored a bit, and then they kind of lost interest. And similarly, Soviet Union also kind of lost interest. 
but the moon's back. The moon's back in a big way. It's back. Yeah, it's the back. Moon it's awesome. Is back. It's back. You know, it's been there. You look up, it's still there. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. People are like, hang on, we're doing that again. It was very but, nice the other night. Yeah, yeah it's been looking good, hasn't it? Um, but yeah, I guess thinking about, I mean, you could call this the Space Race 2.0, or mm. I mean, if you guys have any better names to come up with, feel free to check Space Race up. Ultima. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah Space Race Ultima, let's <laughs> do it. Um, but yeah, so I guess the big players in this space race this time is still the US and Russia, um, but India and China are actually doing a lot to do mm. with the moon. But there's a lot of other countries, you know, spread across Europe, Israel, Japan, they're all spent sending moon missions. And of course, could I go through a moon segment without bringing up private companies and Elon Musk? Sorry, mm. to be brought up. Mm. But, yeah, I mean, we know that the moon is a treasure trove of, you know, valuable resources. There's potentially gold, platinum and other rare earth materials. But the big interest in the moon is actually water. So who would have thought? Just our water, our day-to-day water. But the basic idea is, and the big interest with getting to the moon has been about getting to the South Pole. And so like our South Pole, it's considerably colder down the bottom of the moon. And so people are calling it Moontartica. <laughs> people are? Which people? Yeah. <laughs> what people are calling it Moontartica? I want to I'm going to call it Moontartica well, yeah, for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Moontartica. Not Moonarctic? Moonarctic. I mean, I guess, again, open to all names, open Mark-tick? to whatever. <laughs> Just Marctic. I mean, hopefully your Twitter feed goes off with a few extra names after oh, this. Oh, boy, I'm a bit worried about that now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But basically, so that the way that the, uh, well, the way that the moon is angled towards the sun it means that the south pole sometimes as parts of the south pole don't ever see sunlight so they actually have these permanently shadowed craters and the permanently shadowed craters are massive and quite deep and the thought is that there might actually be big pools of water or water that would be in the form of ice because it's so cold in those permanently shadowed craters um, and I guess, you know, what do you th- what's the big deal with water? I mean, there's the obvious ones. It can sustain life. It can give us drinking water for future moon inhabitants yeah. and also, you know, provide oxygen. But the big deal and the big interest with what water could actually do is the way that it could help create rocket fuel and then it could also help potentially with manufacturing. Mm. Yeah. yeah, so- yeah. Well, hydrogen. So yeah. Yeah, hydrogen, oxygen. Yeah. You pull them apart you'll even go back together in a nasty way and bang you've got rocket fuel. You've got rocket fuel. Yeah. It's yeah. a lot cleaner than like your car- like uh, methane and stuff like that, right? Well, oh, yeah. 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 In so, way it burns. Mm. I mean, it's hard to produce hydrogen uh, here on Earth even. It's very, you know, it's energy intensive to produce. It can be done, but doing it cleanly with clean energy sources is a challenge that we're, you know, the world's facing. But the moon stuff is, you know, if you need to take fuel there, that is such a difficult job because its mass is high and mass is everything in moon exploration. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And if you're thinking about if we had to take all the rocket fuel with us mm. as we tried to take off mm. out of the Earth, like with the gravitational pull and the Earth's atmosphere, I was reading up that they use about, you know, tons and tons of fuel every second during yep. takeoff. So that's why it's so incredibly expensive. It also makes it a bit more dangerous because, you know, mm. having heavy liftoff, there's a lot of hazards associated with that and, you know, unsustainable in a certain way. So, yep. you know, if we could have, I mean, people are calling it, you know, if we could have a lunar sort of rocket fuel station or a moon rocket fuel station you could just pop in and fill up the rocket ship and you didn't have to take all your <laughs> rocket fuel with you as you exited um, the earth's atmosphere that would be a complete game changer for space and mm. also if we're talking about you know if we want to get to mars one day or if we want to keep doing deep space exploration being able to not have to bring all our fuel that could make you know 
steps further, steps closer to yeah. deep space exploration. Yeah, one-sixth. So the gravity is one-sixth on the moon of mm. what it is on Earth. So that it's six times harder you know, to do it from Earth. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's, it's tough, yeah. Yeah, and I guess the other component to it, and this one might be a bit further along than rocket fuel, but touching on manufacturing. So manufacturing, water is fundamental to basically everything we do with manufacturing. So if you want lubricant, if you want a coolant, if you need to dilute a product fabricating a product but even what we touched on before you know if you're able to split a water molecule into hydrogen and oxygen you know what that can do for combustion Mm. and those sorts of things um so yeah definitely could be utilized for manufacturing and i guess the other bit we've already touched on and i know this makes people feel a bit uneasy but there is a lot of minerals on the moon and so the talk about mining on the moon and i'm not saying you know personally i know that makes me feel a bit uneasy but (laughs) the potential for it to be there and also energy source i mean you know solar panels in space isn't something new we've definitely explored it and it could be more efficient to harvest you know solar energy from outside of the Earth's atmosphere, if you haven't got cloud coverage, if you haven't got weather, those types of things. So, I mean, water, um, minerals and also energy, there are three big things that could help yeah. you with manuf- manufacturing. It, it's, it's very interesting, Lily. Like, I, I think initially when you hear about mining, I have that same reaction, mm. of, oh, you know, but here we have that reaction with regards to mining, especially certain materials, mm. you know, uh, because of the damage it can do to the local environments. I'm not really that um, high on the care factor with regards to the environment on the moon because there's <laughs> nothing there to destroy. You know, like, I mean, I, I get that we like looking at it and yeah. stuff, but, like, it's not like the environmental damage there would potentially be problematic locally. Yeah. So, you know, if we could find rare earths or other things that we need here and, and be able to do that there rather than, you know, strip mining forests here, um, I'd be all for that. You know, I think there's, a, there's an element of rethinking some of that as to what that could look like. Yeah, that's an awesome point, Dr. Shane. I'll have to go away and do some thinking. (laughs) (laughs) My sort of question is that if we were to start developing infrastructure on the moon, like, say, building moon colonies or moon factories or what have you, would we want to do it on the South Pole in Moon Antarctica? Like, it sounds like it's really cold down there. Yeah, well, I guess that's sort of the other big thing is, you know, in the bottom of those craters, they're set at temperatures said to be like negative 260 oh, degrees. So, yeah, I can't say I'd be summer <laughs> vacaying there, but um, I guess the big other consideration is, you know, all these countries are talking about getting to the moon and exploring water on the moon, but no one seems to have really come up with, you know, how do we get the water out of the craters? <laughs> I was reading something and there's one study going on in the US and they're looking at putting mirrors around the crater that would reflect the sunlight into the bottom of the craters. And I think it's so funny. It's like the most, you know, basic idea is nothing too overly complex. And I'm sure the execution on the moon would be considerably more complex than I'm painting yeah. it to be. But, you know, it's like sometimes just fundamental ideas like that that might be the steps forward. It's, it's, it's interesting, um, you know, with the water discussion, because one of the things that we forget about on the moon is the absence of water in terms of a flowing sense or the a- uh, absence of atmosphere changes the game a lot. So, and one thing that happens is if you look at the regular, th- the sort of dust on the moon, it's made up of very sharp pieces. So on Earth, this doesn't happen because, in fact, it does happen shortly after volcanic eruptions, but otherwise things get weathered down, they get smoothed out, mm. and dust here is kind of okay. On the moon, it is nasty. It gets into everything. It's highly charged, so it sticks to stuff. And, you know, it's it's not this nice, smooth dust we're used to here. So, you know, even being able to clean things on the moon is really uh, difficult and problematic. But, you know, 
manufacturing and, and construction on the moon is going to be a real challenge. So even back in the 60s, you know, the astronauts, when they got there, they weren't really sure what to expect. I mean, no one really even uh, knew how thick that dust layer would be on the moon. There was a chance they were just going to dive down into six feet of it. <laughs> um, no one knew. So it was sort of, you know, it was nice that it was kind of foot deep, some mm. stuff, but yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, it's not called the moon re- the moonwalk for nothing. I mean, there's a reason <laughs> your feet are sticking to the ground. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, you know, gravity helps. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's interesting. So in terms of, um, when, when we look at the... Uh, the space race at the moment. I mean, one of the things I find really fascinating is that we've become accustomed to all these launches, but they are still hard. Mm. And it's one of the things that people forget is just how hard it is. And you only have to talk, talk to, you know, no one wants to talk to them at the moment. If you, if you talk to <laughs> Russia, um, you know, they tried to land a small rover on the moon at the same time as India. And NASA has confirmed the location of a new crater. Mm-hmm. Um, from where that attempt failed it's you know it is tricky to to get on the moon safely uh, because there's a lot of you know it's not close it may seem close but it's not close it's a three-day journey and landing on the moon is hard you know you one of the things that we forget is that landing on earth actually is pretty easy why because you can use parachutes slow things down you can't do that on the moon it's all you know rocketry um, so that's that's going to always stop you doing cool stuff. Yeah. All right. Dr. Lena? It's the ethics for me that I find quite fascinating. You know, you were saying, Ryan, with with Pluto, there is a an acronym of old white people, presumably, who were talking about whether to make mm. it a dwarf planet. Like, who is making the decisions about mining the moon, not mining the moon, going forward? I, I hear your point, Shane, about the protection of environments here on Earth, but I think for... I don't know, like you, Lily, it sits a bit uncomfortably with me, especially after having my breath taken away last night from the moonrise. It was Mm. incredible to see that orange moon come up and to know that that is being tampered with by humans. I Mm. think some people, that does sit uneasily with them. So where is the Interspace Ethics Committee? Like, (laughs) Tell me, I don't know that. Well, the the good news is Australia is a signatory to the Artemis Accords. Mm. So the Artemis Accords are set up by by NASA as part of the Artemis program, which is the Return to Moon program. And many countries, I think it's like about 30 now, have signed up to this, which establishes certain criteria around the moon and its use and behaviour there. Now, how that will play out over the long term is unclear, because we're not there yet. (laughs) But it is good that people are thinking about that, because I think Mm. You know, this is something that um, we've seen here on Earth as well, especially around, you would remember Dr. Lyndon Lake Vostok in, in Antarctica and whether or not people should drill into this. So for those of you who aren't aware, there's a subsurface or sub-ice level um, non-frozen lake. There's many of them actually in Antarctica. And this thing's been sealed off for, I don't know, a million years or more. And we want to know what's in there. And if you drill really close to it and take core samples, you can find all sorts of little critters. Mm -hmm. And there was a a lot of questioning as to whether or not we should just drill through. And I think Russia did it, as I have a vague recollection they they did it. But anyway, there was a lot of questions around whether or not we should do that because we contaminate the site with all sorts of petroleums and oils the second we put drill bits in there and, you know, that might just ruin what is one of the only remaining pristine environments on Earth. So, you know, we come back to that, and that's a really big, um, a really big issue. Hmm. Yeah. I suppose on the topic of ethics as well, I think what bothers me more than the idea of mining gold or plutonium is mining that water itself. You know, on Earth, 
water's a renewable resource that evaporates, mm. turns into clouds, it comes back. Mm. Yep. I have to assume that the moon without its atmosphere, they use that water, some of it will evaporate, and sooner or later they'll just run out of water on the moon. And yeah. um, one, they'll be back to square one, but also, yeah, you sort of irrevocably, you know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> irrevocably. <laughs> yep. Yeah, change the environment of the moon. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's definitely something that should be considered. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Look, this is, this is something, you know, uh, that if the moon is seen as a dead rock that we can just utilise, mm. then, you know, that's, that's one version of it. But if it's seen as something that's, you know, culturally important to us, mm. etc., then then that is a different scenario. I think we're, we're seeing that at the moment, even with things like light pollution here. Mm. You know, like oh, if you look Starlink. at... Um, oh, have yeah, you seen that, the objections to, you know, looking up at the sky and just seeing satellites. Yeah, you know, have you seen the imagery stars? of all the satellites? There's just so many of it's them. Insane. Like, they're just... Uh, there's a... Yeah. Folks, if you haven't seen it, there's a video that sort of displays how many there are currently in orbit, and there's just hundreds... Of, there seem to be hundreds of them. They're <laughs> everywhere, and you think, well... What am I looking at when I look up into the sky? Now, at the moment, if you're in Melbourne, you look up, you don't see squat. There's so much light pollution. You see the moon, oh, yeah. maybe a couple of other things. If you're lucky, you can see Saturn. Um, but ultimately, you know, like a, a dark really sky sites, so I know it's, it can be difficult to see anything because mm. you've just got all of these bright satellites. Yeah, and and that's a question, you know, because the sky has been spiritually important, you know, and culturally important mm. to people on Earth for forever. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, it's, uh, yeah. And look, that's what, you know, Triple R has a show called Ingenuity, um, Indigenuity, sorry, I was mm. got that wrong, um, in an hour and a half, or an hour, just over an hour, um, with Crystal Denapoli, it talks about, you know, uh, Indigenous astronomy here yeah. in Australia, and, and, you know, that's gone in the cities, you can't see anything, so there's a separation between um, the, the culture mm. and what we used to be able to see, so there's a lot going on there that I think we have to think about, but um, hopefully, you know, with the moon, the Artemis Accords will actually... Um, factor in some of that. I haven't read the documents, but they're pretty substantial, and a lot of countries have now signed on, which is really impressive. Mm. And I think anyone who's going to be, you know, exploring up there needs to do that. Um, only twelve people have walked on the moon. <laughs> it's a really small number. Yeah. And we, we've only had one of them on this show. We had one on this show. Oh, so, wow. Yep, wow. that was pretty, the last one. Yeah, so, they talk big about doing stuff on the moon, but at the end of the day, only 12 people have ever walked on the moon. Yeah, you think they landed there in the 60s. It's been, like, what, over 50 years? And it has been over 50 years. So the last one was in uh, 72, I want to say. Oh, yeah. Maybe a little bit later. But, um, you know, I like to think of myself as someone who was born during the Apollo era. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure that's a good thing. <laughs> it was a while back. Yeah, look, uh, anyway, I want to thank you three. You've done a great job today. Lily, Ryan, and Rolly, thanks so much for, for being on the show. Um, good luck with your ongoing science communication studies and so forth. But I think, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's good to have young people part of Triple R. That's what we do. We're an education station, ultimately. And we like educating the public. And you're part of that. So... Um, thanks so much for participating. Well, thank thanks you. so much thank for you. having us. Yeah, yeah it's yeah, been fun. It's a good experience. You have to give him a mark or something, Dr. Linden. How's that work? <laughs> there we go. A pluses for everyone. <laughs> right. On Dr. Jen's behalf, well done. It was, yeah. You know, I learned a lot and uh, it was wonderful to hear you talk passionately and enthusiastically about your science. So thanks again for sharing. Uh, very good. And also a big thank you to Bruce McKenna from uh, one team. One, Sorry, one turn of my eyes are going. Uh, passionate subscription to Off the Record. Thank you, Bruce. Greatly appreciated. Uh, folks, we're going to hand over to the team from Eat It in a moment. If you haven't subscribed to the station already, though, you are able to do it and be in the running for all the prizes until uh, 5 p.m. on Wednesday, the 4th of October. So that is the end of my birthday. 
So subscribe. That's what I want for my birthday from all of you. A subscription to Triple R by, by the 4th of October. Uh, we will chat to you again next week. Remember, science is everywhere. I'm Dr. Shane. Have a wonderful weekend. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Okay.